Under the Controlled Substances Act and Corollary State Law, the growth, trafficking, sale, possession, or consumption of psychedelics may be a felony punishable by imprisonment, fines, forfeiture of property, or some combination thereof. Psychedelical X is for general information only. Information provided on the show does not constitute legal advice, nor does your listening to the show create an attorney-client relationship with the host. Hello, I'm attorney Gary Smith, and I want to welcome you to another episode of Psychedelic Alex, The Law of Psychedelics, my ongoing exploration of the question of the law of psychedelics. So I want to welcome Catherine Tucker back to Psychedelic Alex. Catherine, this is a return visit for you. You were on several months ago when the Ames lawsuit was pending, and we've since gotten a ruling from the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, so I'd ask you to come back and talk to everybody about what that ruling contains and, and what the implications of it are and where to go from here. So Right. Yes. Well, thanks so much for having me back, and it's an auspicious moment to update everyone. So as you know, um, what is at stake in the case known as Ames versus DEA is the request by a palliative care physician in the Seattle area and a number of his patients with advanced cancer to be able to access psilocybin for therapeutic use for relief of debilitating anxiety and depression, which of course is one of the known efficacious uses of psilocybin. The request to DEA is based upon both state and federal laws known as right to try laws. And these laws are intended to allow patients with life-threatening illness to access investigational drugs that have completed a phase one clinical trial and remain under investigation. The basic intent is to recognize that people with advanced illness don't have the time to wait for new drug approval to wend its way through to completion. So the laws uh, provide for access for therapeutic use prior to full clinical trial, FDA approval, et cetera. When we approached the DEA last January, January of 2021, the DEA flatly said no, it had no authority to permit that access. So we felt that that opened the courthouse door to a judicial challenge, and we filed a case direct jurisdiction in the Ninth Circuit. We got on an expedited calendar because our patients have urgency, and the case did move very, very quickly for a piece of major federal court litigation. And all the briefing was completed in the spring and the summer, and the including very robust amicus participation, um, friend of the court briefs filed. And then argument happened in September um, before a three-judge panel of the Ninth Circuit, and then a ruling came out on January 31st. The ruling did not reach the merits. It expressed no decision on the merits whatsoever, although it did seem to recognize that there's a significant merits issue at stake uh, and was not in any way dismissive of that. 
but it simply said, look, the DEA hasn't given you a final answer. Uh, this is not sufficiently final agency action to open the courthouse door to federal judicial review. That's a really common argument that agencies make to avoid the court reaching the merits. Uh, and this court took that easy off ramp. What we did immediately upon receiving that was uh, two different things that could reach toward the same result of opening access to psilocybin. Um, we have filed a very clear request that the agency give us a final decision. Uh, and we refer to that as a request for waiver because what we have said is that the agency has ample authority to waive a registration requirement for this physician to access this drug for this purpose. Uh, now, waiver is one tool in the DEA toolbox. It has other tools. Um, so it could issue an exemption or make an exception. Um, and those are all things that the agency could do. And given the fact that the case has been pending, uh, it was pending for a year, the agency could act on that request very quickly. Uh, there's no question that it knows now quite a bit about what right to try law provides. The other thing we did is we filed a petition to reschedule psilocybin off of Schedule 1 and onto Schedule 2. That might take a bit longer, but it's also a very appropriate step for that agency to take in light of all of the clinical trials um, and reports of recent years about safety and efficacy and the fact that it is not a drug uh, with high potential for abuse, et cetera. So those are the two things in front of the agency. And one of the things that is presented in this moment, which maybe some of your listeners are citizen activists, maybe they have their own platforms on which they reach large audiences, but this moment is an auspicious and important moment for every activist who wants to see dying patients have the benefit of psilocybin therapy to be writing to Senator Patty Murray, uh, who's on the health committee and who is the senator from the state of Washington where this physician and patients reside. Um, and also making demands on these federal electeds for why are they not taking a more active role in ensuring that duly enacted state and federal law is respected by the DEA? And, and why is the DEA being allowed to obstruct operation of that law? This is a moment where citizen activism can and should come to the fore. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I think that that very sentiment has such favorable tailwind in the form of the amici briefs that were filed. I think, what, 13 states' attorneys general all weighed in? Eight in, states. Eight states? Okay, I overstated it. Sorry. Eight of them, but eight's still a good number. Uh, yeah. Eight of them weighed in on your side of the case. They didn't yeah. want DEA standing between a dying patient and a potential treatment. So yes, exactly. So we really appreciated that. We also had amicus participation from um, end-of-life advocacy groups, mental health advocacy groups. The Washington State Psychological Association came in. Um, we had major hospital systems 
we had the um, leader of many of the psilocybin studies out of Johns Hopkins, Roland Griffiths came in, uh, palliative care, president of the American Academy of Hospice and Palliative Medicine. So there was a tremendous groundswell of public professional organizational support for allowing RTT laws, right to try laws to operate as intended and for patients with serious illness to be able to access psilocybin. So we really need to reignite that very broad base of support now where we're at a moment where the lawsuit is no longer pending. And so the position that sometimes an agency will take or a federal elected official will take when a lawsuit is pending is, well, I can't comment, there's litigation pending. Mm. So the litigation at this moment is not pending. And the DEA um, could do a couple of things with our request. First, it could grant it. That's the obvious and correct thing to do. It could simply act on that request and say, we will waive the registration requirement for the um, transmittal of psilocybin to Dr. Agarwal for his therapeutic use with his patients. And that would then open that access for the patient. I just had a heartbreaking email from one of his patients who is a named plaintiff in this case, Erin Baldeschweiler, who's been very public about her desire to access this therapy. She's a young mother. Uh, she's got two children at home who she doesn't expect to see into adulthood because of her cancer. And she said, I'm running out of time. I'm running out of time. So that's her reality. And I think all of us committed to this advocacy um, should be calling on the DEA and calling on federal electeds that oversee the DEA to see it grant this waiver. So it could do that and it could do it quickly. The other thing it could do is if it is going to stand on the position that it has no authority, then it could give us that final decision and do so quickly, post haste, so that we can return to the courtroom with that final agency decision in hand and have the court say, yes, indeed, these federal and state laws are written as clearly reveals and they should be respected and they must be respected. And DEA needs to create a pathway to access. Amen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's the only, so that's way, the only what, thing you can say after that. Yeah. Getting really specific though. So, so the listeners can appreciate this, the waiver uh, issue that's limited only to the particular doctor and the particular patient in the particular instance. It's not even like you're saying, Hey, DEA, just let all this happen uh, freely and then we'll figure it out later. You're asking them just these particular patients. Nobody else is getting any other consideration here. And, and even well, then the agency is still pushing back, right? Th so that's a really interesting question is would the DEA issuance of a waiver on the pending request meet only the needs of this doctor and these patients um, in the narrowest sense? Yes. In the real world, um, it would reflect the DEA understanding its obligation to open this pathway. Yeah. And mm -hmm. there would be no good reason that another palliative care physician and another patient with advanced illness would not be entitled to waiver. Um, the idea of these laws is they should have broad application. 
if the patients meet the eligibility requirements, meaning they have life-threatening illness um, and they have exhausted treatment that is non-investigational, approved treatments, and they haven't gotten relief, then they are eligible to access this investigational treatment. Yeah. Uh, so I would like to think that the agency will recognize its duty to create a pathway and that that pathway could be traveled by other patients. Uh, of course, I care a lot about the patients I represent, but sure. there are countless patients across the country who are with debilitating anxiety and depression in final stage of advancing illness, and they too could benefit and they should be able to benefit. Yeah, and, and that's also worth emphasizing as well, that what we're talking about here is limited to terminally ill patients. It's not right to try isn't available for other types of patients. These are really people who have exhausted Western medicine and they're just looking for an alternative that isn't readily available in the normal pharmacopoeia panoply, right? Exactly. Yes. So I would say, you know, one caveat about that is, and many of your viewers are lawyers, the federal statute speaks about life-threatening illness. That, of course, could include veterans who are at risk of suicide because suicide is life-threatening and often is life-ending. Uh, and one of the points made in the state amicus brief is that MDMA, which has been shown so efficacious in relief of PTSD in veterans, is also an eligible investigational drug mm -hmm. under right-to-try right laws. So um, these laws are supposed to make these investigational drugs that have cleared phase one available for therapeutic use. The DEA, let's remember, it is a law enforcement agency whose proper scope of interest and authority is avoiding and preventing diversion. So here, where what we're talking about is a uh, practicing physician who has a registration with the DEA where he already takes controlled substances into his clinic for treatment of patients, he's already used to having DEA field officers make site visits to assess the security measures he has in place and who has offered to host these field officers to make sure there's sufficient security to meet DEA concerns around possession of psilocybin. Um, that's the scope and the extent of DEA's legitimate concern. And it shouldn't extend beyond that. And it clearly shouldn't extend into um, the regulation of the practice of medicine. Yeah, and, and the wholesale blocking of access to a, a medical substance, I think could be argued, the DEA is stepping in between the physician and the patient. Yes, certainly stepping in yeah. and creating a roadblock that at this moment is insurmountable. Yeah, well, their, their prohibition is absolute and total, so yeah. Um, you commented earlier that, that you were looking to perhaps encourage DEA to reschedule psilocybin down from Schedule 1 to Schedule 2. Um, schedule 1, of course, total prohibition. Schedule 2, somewhat available, but still very heavily regulated. What's the choice on Schedule 2 versus Schedule 3? Right. Well, you know, because we are so eager and focused on this palliative care use, um, 
we wanted to approach the DEA with the smallest ask. And moving from Schedule 1 to Schedule 2 is the smallest ask. Mm. There are certainly uh, distinguished researchers and scholars who are in the uh, psychedelic research space who have commented that it belongs on a lower schedule. But as advocates, we made the choice to make the smallest ask. And you're right, Schedule 2 remains with severe restriction. So we thought if the DEA was open to any rescheduling, it should have the least reservation about moving on to Schedule 2, where essentially, you know, a multitude of restrictions remain in place. Sure. Which is all consistent with how this would be used anyway. So I guess you're advocating sometimes good enough is good enough. Yes, exactly. It would create a way for Dr. Agarwal, for example, in the Ames case, to obtain and offer psilocybin therapy. Yeah. All right. So what, what do you think is uh, coming next then for, for AIMS? Well, as I say, I think um, the window of opportunity now to bring a groundswell of grassroots support is this moment. Uh, so we are looking at different options around getting petitions going, letter writing campaigns, um, outreach to media, more media shining a bright light of scrutiny, both on how the DEA is handling these requests and how federal elected officials are overseeing that. Um, We'd like to see a very bright light of public scrutiny. Maybe there should be congressional oversight hearings. Uh, So getting a grassroots campaign to bring that bright light of public scrutiny is something we're engaged with right now. And love to help help from any in your audience who are in that, um, in that work. Yeah, 100%. And um, as my audience hopefully is paying attention to this, yeah, everybody should have an interest in this because it impacts everybody. Even if you're not the patient or you're not the physician, someday you might be in one of those roles or somebody you love might be. And just yeah. think about if it were you or somebody you care about who's suffering and there's a substance that might make them just feel a little bit better. Right. And, and that's and come to peace with what's happening in, in their reality. Yeah. And you know what? That's also worth uh, reminding everybody as well. Right to try doesn't demand that the experimental substance save you or cure you. That, that's not the goal right. of it. It's, it's right. a hoped for outcome, but some things are incurable. Yeah. 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 I just gave a interview with a, uh, another podcast called my MBC, my metastatic breast cancer. And I was really moved because that program is created and produced by people who are themselves living with metastatic breast cancer. And, um, they're very committed to this therapy being available because for them, uh, you know, when, by the time you've been through cancer and the progression is that it is now metastatic, that's really bad news and finding ways to remain at peace and with hope and with, uh, acceptance of what your reality is, 
is all that is really available. And, and they really want to see access to this drug available for that community. Sure. And let me, let me put my lawyer's cynic hat on for a moment, as I too often have to do. I'm aware that there are iterations of psilocybin, as well as iterations of MDMA, that are now at phase three study. And from what I have been reading in, in the media, there is a general belief that we're at a two to four year window where these substances will make their way through phase three to some level of approval. Do you think it probable the DEA is going to just try to run the clock down with your people in hopes that this uh, eventual FDA approval and rescheduling will just organically happen without them ever having to answer your question? Sure. I mean, this agency, that's its favorite game, is slow walking, delay, delay, delay. And whether your window of two to four years is right or not, none of the patients I represent have two to four years. Exactly. And there's no reason why they should have two more weeks enduring the kind of suffering that they're enduring. So we're going to keep pushing this forward. Um, you know, this should be an easy lift. There's no need to enact new law. Um, we stand on the shoulders of those who drafted and sponsored to enactment the 41 state right to try laws, including in your state in Arizona, and of course, Goldwater Institute, which has been a great champion of the right to try laws is based there. Um, we stand on the shoulders of that work. And yet for everyone who worked so hard to see right to try laws adopted, now we see them thwarted. Uh, and so it's quite an outrageous overreach of authority by this federal agency to the detriment of dying patients. Yeah, I, I agree. And for folks who maybe don't know the different uh, states or amici who participated, I'm obviously here in Arizona, and our attorney general is known for being fairly conservative. He's a Republican, has run as such, and uh, successfully campaigned. Um, even so, to have come out as favorable as he did for your cause was a little bit shocking, but then on the same token, a little bit not shocking, because what really the advocacy from the amici brief focused on was that this is a state's rights issue, and that ultimately devolves, or reduces down to, rather, the question of, of doctor-patient relationship, and that always exists at the state level. Um, so I was really yeah. gratified to see it, but still, coming out and offering an amici brief of any kind at all, they didn't have to do that, but they did. So that was, right. that was very encouraging coming from one of the more conservative corners of the country. Yeah. Well, it is. It's such an important states' rights issue. And, you know, as you may know, um, there's a landmark United States Supreme Court decision known as Oregon et al. versus Ashcroft Gonzalez. Um, and that case at every federal level, the district court, the appellate court, and the SCOTUS, found that an attempt to use the Controlled Substances Act by the federal government to thwart the operation of duly enacted state law that had to do with medical practice was impermissible. So that precedent, of course, has bearing here. And I think that is why we saw such robust state participation. I should say, in addition to the state amicus brief participation, we also have seen some interesting 
um, federal elected official involvement on this issue. And that is a letter that members of Congress sent to the DEA on January 18, when the case was still pending before the Ninth Circuit, basically urging as federal congressional members that the DEA allow the law to operate properly. <laughs> and that was a bipartisan effort. <coughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting what will bring folks out in tandem. Uh, the last <laughs> time we saw something big like this was uh, probably RIFRA. Or, <laughs> right. or, or condemning Russia this past week. That might have been a bipartisan moment, too. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that is one of the interesting things. Right to try laws have been quite bipartisan in the state of Washington. The enactment was actually unanimous. So it's not just mildly bipartisan. It was every single elected legislator voted in favor of it. Yeah, as they should. I mean, honestly, who would come out opposed to this? It's crazy, yeah. crazy. Well, perhaps this will be one of the items that we'll be picking up and, and running with uh, with the new Psychedelic Bar Association. Yes, very possibly. Well, so um, thanks for mentioning that. And yeah. to any of your listeners... Was, was my Segway se uh, subtle enough? <laughs> very lovely. Any of your listeners who don't know about the existence of the Psychedelic Bar Association, um, we are a recently launched professional association of attorneys who uh, have interest in and specialize in uh, the psychedelic space. And we have recently uh, started our work. It, it took us about a year to get everything organized and up and, and running, but we now have a website, we have a fiscal sponsor, we have members. Uh, and at the moment, the membership is those who are joining as founding members, which is an opportunity that's still open. Um, and when we get to a certain level of membership, then we'll open it to other types of members. But we'd love to have more founding members come in now. Um, and we've started to identify among the membership which areas of practice draws the interest of our members. And, and we've started to form committees. So I know, for example... Gary, you are on a legislation and regulation committee, and I think you're the co-chair. I am. Beautiful. Thank you for your service. Um, Happy to do it. I <laughs> am co-chairing the litigation and advocacy committee. Um, there's an ethics committee and an intellectual property committee um, and quite a few others. So whatever your area of practice is, uh, you can find a committee where you'll find people that you'll be grateful to interface and collaborate and potentiate with. Um, so yes, this is a new and exciting venture. Yeah, well, we're we're gathering the best minds available on the question of psychedelics. And with a high commitment, I like to remind everyone because I'm constantly reminded in my work with the board, I'm, I'm one of the founding board members, of the commitment to really high ethical principles. And so we follow the North Star Pledge, which I'm sure you've also been introduced to if you didn't know before, yep. um, which is really seeking to encourage people 
to come to their work in this space with respect for and awareness of the history and tradition around these substances, across cultures, across millennia, and to hold ourselves as professionals working in this field to really high standards. Yeah, uh, agreed. And you'll probably be too polite to say this, so I'll say it. <laughs> but basically, it's don't do what industry did to cannabis. Uh, right. We, we, I have been in the cannabis space as a practicing lawyer now for almost 12 years, and uh, I love the work. I love the clients. I love what's going on. But on the same token, I've seen a lot of the mistakes, and I really very desperately don't want those mistakes to repeat for psychedelics or other plant medicines. I think we yeah. have enough now. We've learned our lessons. Let's get it right this time around. And that's yes. going to be the focus of my committee. I can tell you that. Yes. Yes. Yeah. It's so important. And, you know, um, I think, too, we have this really interesting experiment unfolding in the state of Oregon with the Oregon Psilocybin Services Act. Yes. And, you know, an interesting aspect of that enactment is the two-year ramp up, which we're now well into, mm. and we're into the second year. And a lot of focus in that effort has been around um, ensuring access, ensuring uh, equity, and the ensuring inclusion. And so I think there is um, a real commitment to doing this right. Um, and, and, you know, Oregon has kind of stepped forward as the laboratory for the rest of the country to watch uh, because it has the first state legal regulated program under state law for access to psilocybin. Um, so there's a lot of interest in what's unfolding in Oregon. I've been um, involved with a group here that is focused on how do we ensure that the rollout of the Oregon Psilocybin Services Act will adequately meet the needs of patients with advanced illness? No big surprise there. That's yeah. my area of, of particular interest. And, you know, there are a lot of challenges there with regard to that. But I would say we're working really hard to make sure the needs of that population will be addressed. Excellent. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I sort of hypothecated that Oregon was going to probably get to your patients before the DEA would? Well, it might, although, you know, this, of course, raises the interesting discussion that Oregon's law can and does only provide a state law safe harbor. Mm -hmm. It cannot provide a federal law safe harbor. Correct. And, you know, a big question that remains open is what position the federal government will take vis-a-vis -vis psilocybin access in Oregon. Um, obviously, it remains at this moment uh, on Schedule 1. Um, and so there's a panoply of sanctions, punishments that can be meted out by federal law enforcement if it has the will to do that. Yeah. Um, whether that will happen, we don't know. I have um, an article in press for publication that really kind of drills down into that right now. Some people have called for a coal memorandum equivalent with regard to the Oregon Psilocybin Services Act. Hmm. I like to say, why set the bar so low? Um, the coal memo took a long time in coming. 
And then, of course, when the political winds shifted, it shifted. So it's not a very safe, safe harbor. <laughs> shifted. It was rescinded. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So can we do better than a coal memo yeah. is my working title for this law review article. Um but take all suggestions for catchier titles. Uh, yeah. Well, I don't know what they're calling it this month because the sponsors keep changing. But what was formerly Rohrbacher Blumenauer was that spending bill writer that said in states with well-regulated cannabis programs, the federal government cannot expend federal law enforcement dollars against those programs. Something equivalent for Oregon psilocybin program probably gets you more than half of the way home and then some. In fact, I remember seeing, and I can't for the life of me remember the case, but in the last year, there was a criminal appeal that successfully overturned a conviction on premise that it was a federal um, criminal charge arising in a state with a well-regulated cannabis program. And the defendant got out from underneath it all because of the expenditure of federal dollars where they shouldn't have been. Yeah. Well, and here with regard to the Oregon Psilocybin Services Act, certainly it is extensively heavily regulatory. And sort of all of the concerns that the federal government might have are addressed in the particulars of that law. Yeah. Although the the, the drawback, though, to everybody relying on Oregon for terminally ill patients is Oregon statute requires you partake of psilocybin at a psilocybin center in Oregon. So if you've got an illness that really limits your ability to travel, this is not a solution for you. Yeah, I really appreciate you bringing that up. It has been a focus of our end-of-life work group that I alluded to a few minutes ago. There is a barrier to access. For many patients with advanced illness, they are receiving all their medical care and therapeutic care at home. Uh, And so the mandate, the restriction in the Oregon law to services being administered in a service center is a barrier to access. Now, that is something that I believe has been fairly widely recognized. And I'm happy to say in the various state measures around the country now, most of them have provision uh, so that that population can have access in a home setting, which is an improvement over the Oregon law. I think the Oregon law will need either a minor legislative tweak or a judicial uh, review of whether that is a violation of state disability rights law. Interesting. I had not thought of that, but I, I, I see what you're saying and I, I like where you're going with that. Right. Uh, Well, a, a state cannot provide a program benefit or service that excludes people with disability. And so the way the Oregon law is written, it does appear uh, that it creates a benefit service or program that would exclude people with disabilities. So um, I think there's a a strong case to be made, but it it may be that this could be addressed um, in a legislative tweak. Yeah, I, I would think so. Um, drawing comparison, uh, Arizona also allows for public initiatives, but we have a constitutional provision that is known as the Voter Protection Act here, which mostly eliminates or prohibits our legislature from tampering or repealing 
anything that's passed by initiative. You need super majorities in, in both the House and Senate in order to make a change. And even then, you can only improve. You can't take away, diminish, or repeal. Um, but something like this, I, I would think, would still be consistent with that constitutional principle here in our state. Because what you're mm-hmm. describing is really an improvement, not a diminishment. So, Right. Well, and interestingly, and this is not an area of my specialized expertise, but I was speaking with Dave Kopelak at my office, who was the principal drafter of the Oregon psilocybin law. And he informs me that Oregon, even if a law is enacted through initiative, there is no restriction on legislative amendment of yeah. that. I know some states do, as you allude, uh, have that, but apparently not in Oregon. Yeah. I think, you know, nobody wants to see a Pandora box of legislative tinkering be opened here. Um, So whether this should be accomplished through a legislative tweak or through a very strategic lawsuit asserting disability rights reasons for reasonable modification Uh, That's a question for somewhere down the road. Yeah, this is all great stuff. Uh, How does the curse go? May you live in interesting times. Right. (laughs) (laughs) May you practice law in an interesting domain. Indeed. indeed. Well, like I said, I I love this stuff. So it's just super fascinating for me. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting, too, of course, to see what the stepping stone of Oregon has led to now in other states. And I'm sure you're following and and I'm following um, what are these interesting proposals. You know, Colorado, of course, has a really interesting, very broad, uh, sweeping measure that addresses a whole panoply of psychedelics, not just psilocybin. And not only creates a legal regulated program, but also um, allows personal use outside of the legal regulated uh, sort of restricted program. So there's some really interesting measures. Um, and, And then, you know, you can look at the state of Maine, where what started out a bit broader has now been carved back uh, to a medicinal psilocybin measure. So each state, you know, this, I think, is the uh, sort of the wonder of the federalist system where different states can go in different directions. And it gives then other states the chance to watch and learn and modify and evolve. Um, And that is all playing out in real time. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I I agree. You know, there are so many people who don't understand this this sweet little tension between states' rights and and the federal government's uh, over jurisdiction of it all. Um, But yeah, there's 50 distinct little crucibles where 50 distinct little experiments can take place and some will win, some will lose, some will succeed, some will fail. And we get to enjoy all of it and pick amongst the best of it in most circumstances. Right. Right. What's happening in Arizona? Nothing. (laughs) No, we're still struggling with getting our social equity program standing up for our recreational cannabis program. Um, But absolutely zero is happening with psychedelics right now. Uh, The most action we've seen, frankly, was the amici brief that uh, A.G. Burnovich filed in your case. Well, and also, do you have Andy Biggs? 
We do. Okay. Andy Biggs joined the member of Congress letter. Ah, okay. In support of the DEA allowing the right to try to operate as intended. Okay. And, and there again, was Andy uh, Biggs right next to Earl Blumenauer on that letter. So those are some strange bedfellows. Oh yeah, for, for sure. And, and But that demonstrates the human dimension of this. This issue should not be political in any capacity. Yeah. All we're talking about is just human existence, basic human rights, and simple, basic, common human dignity for all. That's all this is. Yeah. May it be so. I agree. That's probably a great final word. <laughs> all right. Beautiful. A- any well, other thoughts on this before again. I let you go? <laughs> uh, well, I was just going to hold up my psychedelic Arizona. Thank you for sending oh. it to me. But I see I've already packed it away. I'm actually packing up my house uh, for a move. But I appreciated receiving that. Oh, good. I hope you enjoyed yeah. it. Yep. Excellent. Just barely dipped into it. All right. I look forward well, it's, to it. It's a fun book. I, I hope you find it to be that way. Right on. If well, not, such a if not I will rewrite the whole thing. <laughs> All right. And also, you know, if you are in a position to invite your listeners to support the RTT advocacy, we'd be really grateful. We have a 501c3 that receives the funds that are charitable donations that enable us to do this work. And that fund sits at the NOAC Society in Boulder, Colorado. And any philanthropist or donor, no donation too large or too small. Yeah. Oh, a hundred percent. Do you have any more specific or particular contact information beyond what you've just said? Cause I'm, I'm absolutely happy to, to let you do yes. that. Yes. And I don't have it in front of me, but can I email it to you and maybe you could post it with the show? Oh, absolutely. I was going to say exactly that. Yeah. Please Beautiful. email it to me. I will put it as a slide at the conclusion of this show and everybody will Fantastic. be able to see it there. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, likewise. Appreciate your time, yeah. Catherine. Um, right on. And I look forward to talking to you. I think we're having a psychedelic bar meeting in a couple of weeks. Right on. Such a pleasure. All right. Thanks. All right. Thanks. Appreciate it. Take good care. You Bye. 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 Have a question about psychedelics and the law? You're welcome to submit them. Please send your questions to admin at psychedelicalex.com. Submission of questions is not an assurance that they will be used on the show. Also, please be aware that neither the submission of a question nor a response creates an attorney-client privilege between you and the show's host, nor does an answer constitute legal advice. Information provided is for general purposes only. If you need legal counsel, you should hire competent counsel in your community. Thank you.